Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real treat to speak with one of the uh, real legends in political science, uh, Professor David Mayhew, who is the Sterling Professor of Political Science Emeritus at Yale University, has written so many of the seminal books in the field, and is the recent author of The Imprint of Congress, published by Yale University Press in 2017. Professor Mayhew, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks. I'm, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's, it's such a pleasure uh, to um, uh, have read this, this new book, having read your previous books. Um, you have written some of the, the big works in the study of Congress. Um, this latest book um, comes out in your recent retirement. Uh, let me start by asking you, was this a book that had been simmering for a while, or, or was it the result of a reflection on your, on your full body of study? So sort of places uh, in, in your writing of the book. Well, yes, it had been simmering for a while. There was an immediate provocation. That is, I went to a conference in 2013, and I was asked, we all were asked, to write a paper on Congress as a handler of challenges. And uh, it's a history of Congress conference, so it's, it's asked as an historical question, and I decided to tackle it as an historical question. There was some difference of the wording, getting rid of the word challenges. I So, and yes, so uh, this, is a, this is a history book. It, it has... It doesn't have anything about what's going on in the headlines right now. In fact, I finished it before the election, and I it's innocent of whatever happened in the election. It's a history book. It's about the imprint of Congress across American history. And uh, let me say, why did I write it? Yes, I'd been thinking about this. I think that I mean, the, the question the book asks is, what has been the imprint of Congress on American um, society and life? And uh, you might say that's a, that's a commonly asked question, but it's not. I mean, they, among political scientists, it's really not very often asked, maybe never asked in exactly those terms. I mean, the, the typical questions dealing with Congress are, well, does the public like what goes on? And the answer is ordinarily no. The polls are low. Or is Congress, well, is it democratic enough? Or is it representative enough? Or do presidents get what they want? I mean, for the media, that's a big question. Do presidents get what they want? I wanted to get beyond those questions and, and try to look at the at the imprint imprint of um, of Congress on American um, history and American politics and life, going all the way back, going back to 125 years. It's two and a quarter centuries now. Now, now you've set a sort of a backdrop for the book. These uh, dozen or so uh, ma- major endeavors in, in U.S. history, from uh, continental expansion to responding to climate change. How did you revise? Uh, arrive at these these impulses of Congress? These are some of the big, big national things. Um, but sort of explain that, how you got to these 13. Well, they are. They are. They're, 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 they're a selection. Uh, they, they are. They, I mean, what are the reasons for doing it this way? Was that I wanted to, I, in order to get to the imprint, I wanted to put the U.S. and in, in Congress, what Congress does, in, in transnational and international perspective. I mean, generally speaking, the scholarly treatments of Congress, I think, are rather too insular. And, 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 and I, so, so I chose this, 
what I called impulses to look at over uh, since 1789, and they are, they're, let's, let's say they're impulses that, that have invested a, a, a selection of, of peer countries at various times. It's not just the USA. It's rather it's something to make it onto my list of impulses, which to be sure isn't selective. I just did it. Was was to look abroad and see what 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 impulses to put it that way have have have, have it, you know invested England and France and so forth. A bunch of different countries at different times, like continental expansion in the early 19th. It's an American thing. It's also a Canadian and Australian and New Zealand thing, a Russian thing, or launching a new country in the 1790s. That's a well, that, or in the, around that, a little after that. That's that's something that's going on in Latin America a little later. Or, it's, uh, or what else? I mean, um, consolidating national power in the 1860s, or building a welfare state, or or competing with other countries for world world power and even world supremacy, or um, responding to the Great Depression, or uh, after World War II, trying to build decently productive economies after World War II. Those are those are impulses that you see all over the place, or at least in peer countries. So I, I wanted to see. I, I use that as a selection selection device to decide what to look at in the case of the U.S. and especially the U.S. Congress. And, and what does this say about the the distinctiveness of how Congress has addressed these? What what in in that way are kind of global challenges? Um, does this make the case of for American congressional exceptionalism, or or have common strategies uh, been found? I think, generally speaking, if you look at the at, 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 at the pro- product, so to speak, the, the activity of the whole American state, and compare it with other states, the British, the French, and so forth, there's an awful lot of commonality. Now, apparently, that's the way I'm, I selected things to look at. But it really, I think that the, I, this is not a book pointing out either American or congressional exceptionalism. I think, generally speaking, the the U.S. Uh, does things in its governing system pretty much the way peer countries do things. It's uh, do things, and the U.S. does things just as well. Generally. Speaking, but but there we are. But there are some, but there are some, there are some, there are some wrinkles. Uh, and, and the U.S. might be behaving differently without Congress being the cause of it, or partly the cause of it. But sometimes, probably the Congress is in there. I I think that here, here are some instances where Congress or the I think are some arguments where Congress or the coexistence of Congress and the executive branch probably do impart some distinctively to American distinctiveness to American politics. I think that I think. That the development of the of the welfare state in the U.S. compared with development in other countries in Britain and uh, Germany and for Sweden and other places is at least partly affected by the nature of the American separation of power system. This this has been written about. This question has been written about right nicely lately by political scientists, by Stephen Skaronik, by Zeta Scottspol, by by Monica Prasad, who's a sociologist, very good scholarship about there. And the the, the reluctance of, of of Congress in the late 19th century, early 20th century to agree to establish a strong um, bureaucracy in D.C. that could administer and develop things like a very complicated national pension scheme probably has helped to make the American um, welfare state somewhat leaner and um, and somewhat later than you'll find in some of these other countries. Not that it's worse, but it's it's leaner and later probably than some other countries. I think there's an instance. Another another possibility is this one. That is the the Americans um, essentially 
century ago, or a little more than a century ago, in reaction to the coming of big, big corporation capitalism, corporate capitalism, late 19th century, which is very, very disruptive to societies across the then developing world, in fact, the whole world in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Well, the U.S., um, what the U.S. did uh, distinctively, this is distinctive, is to invest in regulating, very heavily regulating industries rather than to try to operate them through government um, units. That is not, government ownership and operation has been very, very small thing in the U.S., a rare thing in the U.S., but very heavy regulation is um, is there. And I think by, partly this is a congressional thing. That Congress is, is pretty industrious at writing um, regulations, sometimes very thick statutes. But but to get Congress anywhere near actually operating things like the railroads, well, that's a bit dicey. I mean, the, the way Congress operates is kind of messy. It's got it's got you know there can be incessant legislating amendments here, amendments there. All this is very responsive to the public, but it's not some it's not very very good for 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 um, for uh, the development of units. We wouldn't think of having Congress run the federal government run Microsoft, for example. It probably wouldn't work very well. So I think maybe the 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 exceptional privateness of privateness of American um, the American political economy that is the overwhelming devotion to private ownership that may part be partly a response to the fact that Congress kind of meddles messily into units, uh, even though it's extremely good at regulation. Now, you write about our, our current fascination with polarization. Where do you stand on the polarization debate, um, placing polarization into this historical look that you, you give in the book? So so where do you stand? Where have I been? Uh, yeah. Well, let me see. We, we've got a lot of polarization these days. It's a big P, no question about it. It's out there. But to, to put it in historical perspective, what do we see? I, I, I don't like to use um, the uh, standard data sets to compare across history on this one, the uh, congressional roll calls. I just don't, I don't think they go to the... They go to the hundred yard line and try to try to make comparisons about polarization. They tend to they tend to for one thing they tend not to not to tell very well about differences of intensity as opposed to differences in position. But if you look back in American history, I think obviously number one for polarization is the 1850s, 60s, and 70s. I mean, the country is falling apart. It was like it was the you know the the Cyprus or the Northern Ireland of its time in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s. What would the were coming down, it was that apex for polarization. And actually, in the 19th century, building up to it with the crises of 1820 and 1850, we could see very, very, very serious polarization over slavery, north versus south. That was there. And, the, and otherwise, I mean, there are polar, there are there are incidences of polarization which don't sort into party versus party in a statistical sense that goes on for quite a while. For example, with Vietnam War. I mean, the Vietnam War, 18, 1967 through 1960, 1975 is a is a is a period of very very serious polarization in American politics and society. No question about it. People were in the streets. The war was going on. That was not a Democrats versus Republicans polarization, but I wouldn't think that the the fact that it wasn't will immunize it against thinking of, about it as a time of polarization. It was the McCarthy era, 1950 to 54. That was a time of a considerable polarization in that respect. And, and the coming of industrialization in the early 20th century, I mean, who knows? It's very difficult to measure. But uh, all pol- politics was not sweet and low during those during those decades of heavy industrialization. 
So it's there, yes, and we uh, it's there, and, and, and the, through various quite credible statistical indicators and through feeling, we've been getting a an, an ascendance of, um, of polarization during the last 30 years or so, no question about it. Now, as you note, noted at the start of our conversation, this book uh, was both uh, written before uh, the current election, and, and so it doesn't speak directly to it, but you, you have uh, recently uh, uh, offered some comments. You offered some comments in the Monkey Cage blog on, on how to evaluate the opening period of the Trump presidency, and part of this evaluation is by looking back and, and making comparisons. Um, so I wonder if you just uh, uh, maybe end our conversation a little bit by, by talking uh, about that and, and uh, this, this 100 or 120 day legislative record so far. Is it what you expected? Are there any reasons uh, to think that this is uh, different from what we would have expected from a, a Trump administration and its legislative uh, imprint so far? I would say it's not different. Uh, forget about the content for a moment. Just look about the the progression of activity. The uh, the the media tend to use tend to use a 100 100 days yardstick to um, measure what happens in in the well the first of the beginning of a presidency where a new president has just been freshly elected. And uh, at least for legislation, leave aside executive orders. Presidents can do things. They can travel to Arabia. They can issue executive orders. Boy, no question about it. It's very important. But for uh, legislating, as making new laws, the the idea of a 100-day standard is just a terrible standard. It's a fake yardstick. That it, you know, and we look back to or Roosevelt 1933. There was an immense crisis that backed up um, Roosevelt's 100 days in 1933. And no question about it. It was the maybe the biggest binge of lawmaking in American history in FDR's 100 days. But since then, if you look through all the freshly elected presidents, I, I can find only one instance of an important law passed during a 100 days period, and that was uh, Obama's um, um, uh, stimulus bill in February of 2009. But notice that was another crisis uh, piece of legislation. That is, the economy was collapsing or in terrible shape right then in the winter of 2008 to 28, 2009. So it's not surprising they could get their act together in a hurry, but otherwise, I mean, all the presidents since uh, since Roosevelt, there's virtually nothing that goes on of legislative importance in the first hundred days. Put it that way. Another point, the second point I can make more briefly is that the Republicans on Capitol Hill are, uh, you know, they're kind of, they're divided. They're sort of like they get the Tea Party folks. It's difficult to herd them together. It's like herding cats. You get the New Jersey cats as well as the uh, Tea Party cats and so forth. The Senate Republicans against the House Republicans, and he's like, oh well. The, uh, but but uh, the, 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 the historical point on this one is that congressional parties going back a long time and just just keep it to congressional majority parties are usually very seriously divided on uh, on major issues it's uh, it's just not a new thing that is i mean and it's not just one party it's both parties i mean and with ask uh, Harry Truman and Sam Rayburn and Jack Kennedy about the democrats and dixiecrats about capitol hill and what kind of troubles they were giving that was david mayhew talking about his new book The Imprint of Congress, uh, published this year by Yale University Press uh, in 2017. Thank you for listening to the podcast.